I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. Today's guest is Lily Herman. She's the founder of Get Her Elected, a political network of thousands of volunteers who've offered their skills pro bono to progressive women candidates running for office. And with a record number of women running for office, this is a service that's sorely needed. We also talk about the blue wave and the pink wave in midterms, and we talk about some possible Democratic blind spots. So here's my conversation with Lily Herman. Lily Herman, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. You know, when I was thinking about when I was preparing for this interview yesterday, I was so excited because I'm so excited to, to live vicariously through someone who has some distraction <laughs> and, you know, who's actually doing something to help people get elected. You know, I was wondering if it was like that for you. Has Get Her Elected been kind of a respite for you? Oh, goodness. It's it's definitely a labor of love, but I always which I always tell everyone, but it's I, I would definitely put an emphasis on the love part of that. Um, even even the sort of as as I'm sure, you know, and have from talking to people, a lot of work is just a lot of mundane work. But it's it's I think been nice to do that and have it lead towards something bigger. So that's been really, really rewarding. All right. So tell me about Get Her Elected. What do you do and, and how did you get started? Yeah. So on the highest level of, of what the concept is, Get Her Elected is a group of people who are offering their skills pro bono to progressive women candidates running for office. So what does that all mean? Currently, we have now almost 2,300 volunteers. They have skills that range from everything from writing and editing to graphic design and web design to data analysis analysis and data entry to uh, general fundraising. And the list goes on and on. I mean, I could spend hours listing all of the skills of our amazing volunteers. And what they do is we sort of match them based on tasks that uh, specific candidates have. And that enables us to help those women throughout their campaign. So there's at our peak, we had 230 women we were helping. Obviously, that number goes up and down a little bit, depending on who makes it through their primary or their runoff. Um, Some women also enter our network later. We already have some candidates running in 2019 and even 2020 who've entered our pipeline. So, uh, so lots of, lots of, uh, good stuff going on there. And I guess in terms of how it started, uh, so I, I've done a lot of work for campaigns and different political organizations over the years, volunteered for campaigns, worked for them, worked for different organizations that especially women centric, uh, political organizations. And something that I just sort of noticed over time long before the election was, was sort of this, this gnawing subconscious, problem I saw that these organizations were phenomenal at getting women interested in running, giving them those those first key toolbox kind of resources that they could use. Uh, but there wasn't really any built out constructed pipeline for when these women actually filed to run. So a lot of women got all of the support the second they filed those papers. Um, those teams kind of felt like, well, our expertise is, you know, we kind of have this cutoff and then women are, are left alone to run their races, which obviously, whether you're a first time candidate or like an eight time candidate, there's always going to be stuff that you have no idea what you're doing or you're down on support or funds or, or just need more knowledge, what have you. So yeah, so that was just a subconscious thought. And then how the actual organization came from that is right after the election, you know, I'm thinking about the fact that I live in New York City, which obviously has a mountain of issues, but is uh, much more progressive slash liberal than a lot of other places in the country. And I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, which is on on or near the Florida Georgia border. Wow. And obviously, I cannot uh, practically 
fly down to Jacksonville constantly uh, in the midst of all my other work up here to volunteer or help make change there. So I thought, okay, there must be an organization out there that, yeah, I can volunteer my skills as a writer, an editor, a digital strategist to a campaign somewhere. Um, I went searching around. I talked to some friends at a variety of organizations. A lot of places either didn't have that or they had maybe a volunteer list, but hadn't really created a program around it. It was just sort of this bizarre, um, just sort of email subscriber list. Uh, so yeah. so I, I said, okay, maybe I'll just get together a couple of friends like 10, 15 people and we'll we'll donate some time to a couple of campaigns and call it a day. Uh, I sent out one tweet in like December or January of 20, 2016 or 2017. So so in that, that time frame in the month or two after the election and I just said, hey, you know, if anyone wants to help uh, liberal, I didn't say progressive, it was like liberal women get elected, <laughs> you know, uh, send yeah. me an email. And I, again, thinking I'd get like two or three emails and group some friends together and that tweet alone got me 80 as an eight zero emails. Wow. So, you know, I'm sitting there on this giant pile of of messages and obviously I'm sitting there saying, "Okay, I've I've, you know, I've hit some sort of nerve here." And everyone kept saying the same thing of like I'm in a liberal place or I just don't even know how to help and and calling my reps, you know, while important is not the only thing I want to do or I don't want to just attend a rally once a year or something. So, that's I guess the the origin story of of how get her elected uh, came to be. That's amazing. Actually, that's a really good lesson for anyone out there who's listening and they and they feel kind of anxiety about something that's happening when they find a niche that hasn't been filled, right? Absolutely. And my biggest tip to everyone is always make sure the thing that you have in mind doesn't exist already. Uh, often yeah. cases it does. I learned this lesson in college. So I went after it for a month or two before putting out that tweet, quadruple checking that I was not about to step on someone's toes or create something that had already existed to the, the level of infrastructure I wanted. You know, none of that was was there or or there were a couple of groups but they were very local very small and had a more specific niches so you would have you know graphic designers in Jackson Hole Wyoming helping Wyoming candidates yeah. or you know and they're nonpartisan or whatever it might be so that's always my biggest thing is is I guarantee about 90% of the time something like what you're looking for already exists I always say try it out before you do your own thing because also doing your own thing is very difficult. <laughs> so yeah, so yeah. if the infrastructure exists, people are always happy to have really enthusiastic people. Right. So one of the things that I was confused about was when I read about what your organization did was before your organization, how do people recruit volunteers for these things? Because you offer, like you said, anything from marketing to content strategy and, you know, presumably like a whole host of other other services. Yeah. So typically it's very difficult. Um, one, if you are associated with there's a lot of, again, amazing organizations, you know, you can get on the list of Emily's list. She should run Vote Run Lead, Emerge America, Higher Heights. I mean, literally the list goes on and on of, of places that are, are helping women be inspired to run and, and empowered to run and giving them those initial tools. So some women would go through those organizations to try and get help. Uh, a big issue that a lot of these orgs are seeing nowadays post-2016 is they are swamped. So they are you know, feeling like they barely have the bandwidth or don't even have the bandwidth to do what their kind of core mission of, of you know, trainings or whatever have you, let alone then help their alums of those programs or, or the women they've endorsed then find all of these other things. Right. So that's one route that some women went. And we, we work with candidates who, you know, say like, I know those orgs have the best of intentions, but they just didn't have the bandwidth to help me find someone or whatever, other than maybe putting a call out on these random email lists. Uh, so that was one thing. Two, you just have to, a lot of women we talk to before they find us are trying to find people 
locally. So that's a huge issue. Or they're spending money that they don't have or trying to fundraise to have that money to spend that they don't currently have yeah. on on these services. Uh, so so that's sort of, uh, I, I guess, the two biggest routes I see when I talk to women. Um, but and, and then the other problem is a lot of times you don't know who you're specifically supposed to contact. So you would have women, for instance, who went through some sort of training or program who would maybe reach out to their program training officer, but that person might not know who's specifically running this volunteer list or if that list even exists or what the deal is. So that's also, I think, created some issues in the past. You know, what's interesting about the political climate that we're in right now. So, you know, you've got the pink wave and you had the Women's March and there's so much energy behind women running. I would think that now, you know, after the 2016 election cycle, that women would be better off, right, in terms of people being there for them and to help run their campaigns. Why is it that women candidates still have so few resources in comparison to the male candidates? Ooh, where to even begin? <laughs> so, many, so many things uh, to unpack in that question. Um, yeah, so a bunch of things. One, uh, Democrats have it a little bit easier than Republican women, but one, uh, there's just hasn't been that level of infrastructure, uh, both formal and informal in terms of networks for women candidates to a certain extent. So obviously, again, I say Democrats have it a little bit easier because they do have places like Emily's List or, or what have you that are partisan and leaning towards towards helping them. Uh, and I think issue stances align a little more in terms of helping women versus uh, certain other stances by other parties. Uh, so I think that's one thing is that infrastructure doesn't exist, didn't exist Two, you're still even on the left dealing with a lot of uh, sexism, misogyny, yeah. uh, even from women, just a lot of internalized misogyny where uh, they're coming up with all sorts of reasons to not help other women. I've had some candidates, too, say that they've had more trouble getting women to support them than maybe people in other sort of identity demographics that they that they identify with. Uh, wow. So so that's always really interesting and always a little bit just infuriating to talk to people about that. So I'd say those are two. And then also, I think I think there's just within that people just have a lot, including I would say, as someone who's on the outside, it is not some sort of you know veteran campaign staffer or something who's been doing this for decades. I, I think there's a lot of very deeply entrenched idea of how the infrastructure and those institutions should work. And again, because women have largely been underrepresented, and then within that different groups of women. Uh, th there's just not, I think, a sort of push in certain parts of these institutions to really bring women in. So um, I, I think that's all an issue. I mean, from volunteer perspective, too, uh, I think the issue with some of these institutions is they have the idea of who who the ideal volunteer is, and that creates problems. Uh, so I think all around, it's just there's just a lot more to deal with to, to getting these women the help they need and then helping them run. Um, but I think, you know, especially after 2016, there's been a lot of movement to start building up that structure. But I'm also very aware, as of lots of other people, that that takes years and years and years, and in some cases, decades and decades to really actually build out and solidify long term. Yeah. You know, I was reading um, recently, um, Kelly Dittmar, and if you know Kelly Dittmar, she wrote the book about, I think it's called Navigating Gendered Terrain, about campaign strategies when they're crafted through this gendered lens. And in one chapter in the book, she was talking about when women run for office the party officials or party insiders, right? They determine a candidate's viability, yeah. right? And then that determines how much resources they'll pour into that person's campaign, yeah. right? But that's a setup for women, yeah. right? Because of sexism, right? Just to put it simply, women are deemed to not be natural leaders. And of course, you know, even if that's subconscious, in that sense, they'll just have a disadvantage from the from the get-go. Yeah, they'll create a lot of reasons when, when you get down to it, don't make any sense unless you're 
being sexist. You know? So, so even when I, yeah, when I would talk to uh, talk to people and and to women, I've heard all yeah all sorts of infuriating reasons of, you know, it goes back to there's a chicken and egg problem of okay, you can't raise money without money, but you can't get that initial money without actually fundraising it. Uh, so you'll have fundraisers who say, you know, I can't sign on to to give you money until you have this much. Obviously, they all feel that way. Uh, and, and also on top of that, you know, you deal with just also, I think a lot of institutions like predictability and I think they get very, uh, thrown off in a lot of ways by anyone who's unpredictable or unconventional. Uh, I recently was, was moderating a panel through an organization called AWP. Um, they had a, a conference called win with women at that conference. There was Amanda Littman from this amazing organization called Run for Something. And she made a great point that women in this election cycle are being really, really interesting and not boring with branding themselves as, a, as women and as mothers. And you, know, you have multiple women breastfeeding in campaign ads. You have women no longer just giving their campaigns, you know, spiel in their ads in a kitchen, you know, baking cookies. They're wearing different <laughs> outfits that are yeah. not the sort of pearl necklace shift dress with a blazer. But I think though, while that's all great and I think it's awesome and I'm telling everyone to just do it, you have institutions uh, who are really threatened and afraid of that uh, and and get really scared and because they've never seen or had to do anything differently. And so they kind of knew what sort of women candidate would do well in their minds. And, and again, they would sort of use that thinking to keep a lot of women out. But on top of that, now they don't even know what to do and they can't really control these women. And, and because they're, they're saying they're not going to fund them, they end up kind of falling flat on their face when those women do do well and they're not the ones who help them get there. So, so there's a lot of, again, I'm getting a little bit off track here, but there's a lot of these, these sort of no, yeah, smaller rabbit holes and, and whatnot you get into as soon as you start digging into what's really going on uh, with within these campaigns and these with these candidates. So the thing is, is that th that no one talks about is the idea that in some ways, you know, perhaps they're they're right. So firstly, withholding funding from a woman candidate, you know, because of ideas that are built around sexist cliches, you know, that's never that's never okay. Mm -hmm. But perhaps the calculation, the idea that you know there are some communities who may be fine with voting for a woman candidate. Mm -hmm. Those communities may not be ready for someone who completely breaks the mold. And maybe that's just a pragmatic calculation that we should we should all yeah. talk about. Yeah, I think it's sort of I think one thing that a lot of people have have said is it's important to look at the patterns and the overarching sort of themes we see, but also understanding that. Uh, we also have to look holistically and individually at every district, every state, every area, et cetera. So yeah, so certain women can totally get away with it. Um, other ones might see some resistance. I think at the same time, though, it, it what we're seeing is it really depends on the women. There are women that everyone counted out in certain communities and they ended up winning uh, or they at the very least ended up, you know, doing way better, even if they didn't win, than anyone could have possibly imagined. So I think it, it really depends on the woman. It depends on where they're running. Um, and I think also what, something that we're really big on at, at Get Her Elected, and which I tell everyone, is like the, one of the biggest questions I get is, do you bring on you know candidates or vet them based on viability? And my answer is always no, because I believe that every single woman, especially every progressive woman who runs, regardless of if they win or lose, their presence, and regardless of, I think, what to a certain extent, what that presence is, that makes it easier for the next woman to run. So, you know, there's some women who are obviously going to lose. We've seen some already lose in in the primary so far, but they have they have shifted the playing field already as is, and they're making it easier for candidates who don't want to fit a mold um, and, and who want to kind of do something different. They're making it easier for those women to do that, even if maybe that candidate themselves didn't necessarily do that as well. Uh, I think just the idea of women in these spaces is is already revolutionary, even if people don't want to 
pretend it is or think that we're, we're in this sort of strange like post gender like stereotyping world which is of course right. not the case but you know i think i think all of those women are making that sort of difference um and again it's the the shift is so slow it's it's sort of all at once and we kind of forget in the midst of a news cycle where things break every 40 seconds that at, at the end yeah. of the day uh the progress of human history is both a very fast thing and yet a very very glacial slow process yeah that's quite profound, actually. So, <laughs> so you wrote an article um, about the California yeah. primaries and about how the blue wave wasn't a sure bet. And I've read that in other places, too. So so why do you think it's not a sure bet? I think the bigger thing is, so I'm really, I, I'm both a very cynical person, a very hopeful person. Uh, my, my biggest thing is I never want people to get complacent. And I think, especially like I said, being someone who grew up in a very conservative area and now lives in a very much or just much more liberal place and and also has family in California and whatnot. I think it's easy if you're in New York or California to say like, yeah, we got this in the bag, like great. Or just having someone who is some form of blue is like <laughs> perfectly fine. Who cares? Whatever. They, they are, they are not, they don't have the GOP stamp of approval on them, you know, et cetera. Uh, I think the issue with that, though, is is that you then run the risk, again, not really focusing on the issues and and moving them to a different place. Um, as, of course, as, as a lot of people are mentioning, you know, we're starting to finally see that there is a, a difference in certain types of Democrats, which has always existed. But, but I think uh, sometimes there's sort of this feeling or sentiment that just can come around of, well, these places are better than those places. Therefore, let's focus on the places that are truly terrible and and let you know these other these other states like california or new york just sort of do them you know yeah uh and i think the problem with that is we can say we can do both so if you are in california and you want to see more progressive policies you know don't just stop at okay we have a democrat in congress you can try obviously try first to see if that person can become much more liberal or progressive on their views if it's looking like they're not going to budge or they have highly problematic intentions and and votes absolutely go you know see who else would be would be great for that position um i that's that's my biggest thing i see this happen all the time in in new york where everyone just can get a little bit uh complacent or just sort of like well it you know it doesn't really matter um even for things like you know local elections here that was also again just as someone who never had that privilege uh for a long period of time growing up in my in my adolescence i just find that bonkers uh, so yeah so I'm, I'm like sitting here like at least you guys have democrats to choose from usually we did not and if we did there was exactly one and often yeah they were not someone great so then you were stuck with the quintessential dilemma of like both options are terrible what do i do probably vote for the democrat but like oh you know it's just like oh god so so i think that that's where a lot of my it's it's not necessarily saying that's always happening and there are a lot of great especially activists and lobbyists and people doing that work and really making sure that those policies are moving forward or they're finding other candidates but uh, i also talk to just as many people who you know are sort of saying well it's blue so not a priority or like not going to worry about it for a while. And that's where you start to see a lot of issues where people uh, stop paying attention to what's really going on. Right. You know, that's a dilemma that, that I have, too. I live in Seattle and it's very, 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 you know, liberal as well. And, you know, even myself, sometimes I think, well, you know, I want to focus on, you know, other other areas, other states like Texas. Maybe I'll do some phone banking for them and just kind of, you know, not think about the issues in my local area. But I don't know. I don't know. It is a dilemma. And I'm from the South, too. So I, I, I get it. 
Ah, yes. The Southern, the Southerners always like, <laughs> if you were, were at all liberal and grew up in a real Southern place, it's just that sort of moment of, I get it. Like, yep, yeah, I, you know, uh, it's, it's a time. It was, it was an interesting time <laughs> in my, in my yeah, life. Yeah. No, I, I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, which, you know, just like miles from the Lorraine hotel, seriously. Oh. And so, yeah, I, I get it. <laughs> the need to escape. And then this kind of draw this connection, you know, to back home. Right. I think it's yeah, I think it's just a, an interesting different perspective. I think there's just also I quite frankly, I've had friends in the Northeast who said, I don't really know if I even really had to grow up with Republicans. I mean, in a sense of knowing someone well who was a Republican. And I, right. of course, am sitting there like, uh, that was the vast majority of my class. <laughs> uh, yeah, I have a my one of my favorite terrible stories to tell is that when I when I was in high school, I wore Obama Biden buttons on Election Day in 2008. <laughs> and a random older like senior or something told me I was a Muslim terrorist sympathizer, which obviously he heard it. from his parents and from Fox <laughs> News. But, you know, it's like I went there for high school. So uh, <laughs> a little bit different, you know, combined with the fact that I'm Jewish and was living in a southern part of the Bible Belt, uh, you know, it was sort of a, yeah, there's sort of a different perspective there. And I think, I think coming up here, there's been a lot of, uh, of me having to explain how certain parts of the country work um, and not to excuse some of their views or behaviors, but saying, hey, understand the context of what goes around here, or the culture that these people are in, uh, including the fact, one of my other favorite terrible stories is that, you know, there are kids in my graduating class who believe that the Civil War should be called the War of Northern Aggression. So, and we're completely <laughs> unironic about it. So, um, yeah. again, all things to keep in mind in terms of in terms of politics. And I, I always make that point to people who are from liberal areas and stayed in liberal areas and didn't really get actual exposure elsewhere, um, other than maybe visiting Disney World on vacation or something. You know, it's it's sort of like, let's, let's be real here about what these areas are like, uh, especially if you're there long term. Right. I mean, I think my experience was just living there. I think that if you are a liberal family or a liberal person living in, in the deep, deep South or, you know, a deep mm -hmm. conservative area, my feeling was that people kind of the liberals who were there kind of resigned themselves. You know, they would vote, but yeah. but but they knew that, you know, nothing would happen. Right. So they kind of resigned themselves yeah. to living kind of in this, you know, conservative enclave. Yeah. Well, that's what I, I was going to say. That's what I find so interesting about this election is you have a lot of resurgence where people are really excited. Um, you know, one of my favorite races right now is Amy McGrath's race in Kentucky, where you're just like, Kentucky? You know, she beat out, you know, someone who was uh, asked to run by the, the DCCC and, and just had this, you know, obviously amazing viral campaign ad um, because she, you know, is a veteran and has done all these amazing things. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but it's definitely, I think, a, a, a different world and that we're finally seeing a little bit of movement. But I would say similarly too, you have a lot of places where demographics are changing, specifically in the South. I know Jacksonville in recent years has had, it's just a good example, has had a lot of corporations settle down there. Those have brought transplants from more liberal areas of the country and from the South. So I, I think what's been fascinating is I haven't been there for, for many years, living there permanently, is watching sort of, you know, the the democratic swell start. But I think, yeah, they, they definitely have uh, a, a long way to go and, and people in Jacksonville are really excited but also recognize that they're getting there, but they, they, there's still uh, a lot to do. Yeah. So here's the thing. So why can't people be excited, you know, and, you know, with the blue wave and the pink wave, why can't we be really excited and also pragmatic? 
right? And that's the thing about the data for me. So for instance, some numbers came out, I think last week about, you know, how the women who are running for office have fared. Yeah. And I, I tweeted that and I even, I think I posted it on Facebook and it didn't, it wasn't received very well, right? Uh-huh. And, I, and I was just saying, you know, it's just data, right? Like it's data that you should pay attention to. You could also be really excited and energized about these women, but, but you should also know where our blind spots are too. Mm-hmm. That's something that I don't, I don't get. But yeah, because I'm very, as I, I've told everyone and everyone who knows, again, I'm very cynical and also very optimistic and hopeful, but I'm, I'm always sort of a hope for the best and, and, and work to, to see the best happen, but prepare for the worst. Uh, I, you know, case in point, I was one of the only ones of my friends who I think had really thought through a scenario where Donald Trump won for president. Again, just having been yeah. from the South and knowing people who campaigned for him that I went to high school with, I was yeah. not as, I was, you know, obviously grief stricken. It was terrible, but I, I was, I think, less shocked in that sort of way. But I think similarly, um, you know, I think using the energy and the and the the momentum we have right now is great. But my concern, which I tell everyone, is I do not want to wake up on November seventh, regardless of the outcome of the midterms and all the infrastructure is gone or people say like, we did it, it's over. Or yes. I, you know, I, I, I hate the term the year of the woman that's been coming back because I'm like, well, <laughs> like anything else, every year should be the year of the woman. Like the what the right. women, and, it, and, then, and then within that, we can't just say women, we have to talk about women of color. We need to talk about women with disabilities. We need to talk about single mothers and and and, and parents in general. We need to talk about all these different people and what it means to, to be the year of the woman. So, uh, so that's always my, my thing to people is like, well, what are you going to do on November 7th? If, if we win or lose, what is your plan? And if people are just kind of like, you know, I don't know, or like, I'm just hoping it works out, then yes, <laughs> you need to work harder before the election. And then you need to also consider what your game plan is, I think, in both scenarios when that moment comes. That's why I think it's so important to not blind yourself to the data, to look at the data, right? Yeah. And another thing about being a Southerner, I think that, you know, people like yourself and myself, we could possibly see a scenario where Hillary Clinton wouldn't win because we understand how people in those regions think, right? Absolutely. So, Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I was just going to say, I, I, I was sitting there and I said to a friend of mine who I forgot at the time, you know, was very from the Northeast, went to a liberal college, et cetera. But I made some comment like, you know, he still could win. And here's what I think would happen. You know, obviously, all these terrible scenarios and and she was like incredulous over yeah the very idea and again i wasn't saying i hope he wins obviously not, not right but i was sitting there saying okay but i want to emotionally prepare myself which i couldn't have even done that if i tried but uh but i i was one of the only people i knew up here especially amongst people who maybe um when I was talking to people who who were also from from more liberal or, or accepting areas i was one of the only people who had really thought through that. And then sure enough, I had some Southern friends who also made similar comments. We're like, I think we need to talk about <laughs> if America is as racist as we all think and know it to be and like as sexist and as yeah. like just terrible. Yeah. So, so that was that was really fascinating to me. Yeah, not not to stay on this topic too long, but I, I definitely yeah. did not feel encouraged when I wanted to talk about the fact that the margins were so slim in so many yeah. areas and they were getting slimmer. Right. That wasn't a popular thing to point out. Um, But anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, Russians aside and all that that other (laughs) stuff. (laughs) 
So I want to talk about democratic messaging around around the blue wave and around the pink wave for the midterms. And mm-hmm. I think that there are two goals that are being conflated, right? So mm-hmm. the primary goal, of course, is to take back the House and the Senate. And I think that falls under the umbrella of the blue wave. And then there's mm-hmm. the secondary goal, which is the pink wave, is to elect more women. And I don't mm-hmm. think the messaging around that has been very clear. They're kind of lumped in together, right? Yeah. I'd say, too, what's interesting of having both of these goals at once, well, one, it forces... Uh, especially Democrats to have to think intersectionally in a certain to a certain extent, which again I'm saying that the other problem is that they're not thinking I think intersectionally enough, yeah. uh, which is another problem. But but I think first of all a lot of people are upset that they even have to think about women, so that's an issue. And then of course you get those people who say, well, what if the woman is like unqualified and the guy is very qualified? <laughs> Am I a bad feminist? Um, and, and again, there's a lot. There, we could spend eight podcasts on that kind of theoretical question. Um, but I, I think that's what's been sort of interesting is is having to. See a lot of people reckon with um, a lot of their values, you know, a lot of people who said they were feminists having to actually think about what that means in a lot of different senses. So so that's been, I think, fascinating. Again, I, I think just in general, I'm also just very nervous, even women aside, that Democrats will get excited if they take back the House and or the Senate and then stop doing stuff. Or right. that, that's honestly my biggest concern is regardless of if women have a breakthrough or whatever it is. Um, I'm just very concerned about, about yeah, what November 7th looks like. And I think too, you know, a lot of, because I work in media, I'm aware of this, a lot of places are starting to at least plan out their 2020, aka the presidential election yeah. coverage. And that's also, I think, stressful as well. If you think of it in the context of the blue and the pink wave of like, will we see women running, especially for the Democratic ticket? Uh, obviously, a lot of people are saying yes. Uh, and then there's a lot of debate within political scientists and you know political strategists and all these different people about if a woman will win very soon in American history or it'll take another 50 years. That's a whole debate. So I think that's that's been really fascinating to read about. Out is that a lot of very smart people disagree with each other. Um, right. And I think the second big thing is obviously a huge issue that the Democrats had for the past, even well before Obama, just decade plus, two decades, whatever, is they became obsessed. I would even say further back than that, but they became obsessed with the presidency and didn't focus on having a really great, you know, down ballot slate of candidates. They didn't focus on the pipeline, on the local state, et cetera level. Uh, there right. was a, there's been a lot of emphasis on the presidency, and as we've obviously seen over the past decade, uh, if your you know legislative chamber of government is you know Satan, that is going to make it very hard <laughs> for a Democratic president to get anything done. Uh, yeah. And similarly, uh, if if you're trying to really implement stuff and make make a difference, a lot of it starts on the local and state levels. So if you don't have people who believe in your beliefs on those levels, you can have the presidency all day long and you will see a lot a lot of communities go backwards. So that's also something that that has been a huge concern of mine is both, yeah, like what do we do in terms of win or lose, in terms of women getting elected and Democrats taking over uh, the majority in either or both houses, you know, and, and also Democrats on the state and local levels is another huge thing that I'm always talking about and thinking about. But on top of that, you know, how does that how does that lead to how we're going to feel in 2020? Uh, and I think that oh that's a pretty thorny a big thorny issue, basically. Yeah, I, so much to say about that. So first of all, um, I, to your point about, you know, maybe we'll have success in November and then Democrats will just forget about it. Yeah. Like, I think the thing is, is that people don't realize is that we were disgusted in 2007. People have forgotten about that. Oh, yeah. We were so disgusted with Republicans and what happened with the war and with Bush in 2007 that there was a book published that was called I'm Sorry. <laughs> 
<laughs> Do you remember? You were, you were too young. I, I think was, you, were in, you were in high school. But there was a book that was published that, that was called, I'm sorry, I have a copy. I bought a copy a few months ago because I wanted to remember that, where people were taking photos of themselves holding up signs that said, I'm sorry to the world for push. Yeah. No, I, what I'm also to that point, what I'm fascinated by, one, I'm always fascinated by why we go backwards and specifically why white people and even more specifically why white women go back, keep going backwards. Because yeah, we can say the same thing about like the Bush era, um, the civil rights movement. Like what happened? Like why can like white women just not get it together on a large scale? And on top of that, what I also find fascinating about this era is, especially as someone who's built an entire career on the internet, I'm always fascinated <laughs> by the internet element and, and also how that's shaped the group that is, yeah, very, very lower, younger millennials. So people like me who some, some people, researchers would say that I'm not even technically in the millennial bracket, who knows? But I'm always thinking about that, that generation that is very talented millennials. So beginning of the 90s to mid 90s, and then the beginning of Gen Z, which everyone has thoughts on when that begins, but you know, late, mid to late 90s, early 2000s. Those are the kids who are the Parkland activists and all the other high school activists. Those are the college students. And I'm, I'm really interested to see what happens with them or how they react and can they overcome a lot of issues that have impacted previous generations, especially younger generations in these moments. So yeah, so will we be in another 10 to 15 years having another I'm sorry moment? Um, you know, like, how do we make it so that we're not following this pattern again? And then yeah, when I'm in my like late 30s, I'm once again now with children explaining why we're fighting for the rights of all of these people, because we allowed terrible folks to retake control and then figured it out way too late. So, I mean, figured it out way too late in terms of larger society. So, that's also what I think I'm always I'm always thinking about in terms of yeah, like how how did we get here considering that we felt like we were here over a decade ago. Right. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I don't think is talked about often enough is that, um, I'm sorry to say this to anyone's listening, that we may not get another chance in 2020, right? I mean, with the with, with yeah. the, the rate at which things are progressing now and, you know, with, you know, there's some gerrymandering cases that have been won, but some haven't been won. And there's obviously a focus on, you know, voter suppression. We may not, if we don't make significant strides in midterms, you know, 2020 mm -hmm. may just be a very slim option for us. Yeah. No, I I always tell everyone, I'm like, I would love to see what 2024 looks like. That That's going to be an interesting year. <laughs> uh, that's like my running joke with all my friends. But yeah, I... I, I'm just in general, I'm always very concerned with, with yeah. And I, and I think the stakes are so high and also needing to make sure that we always remember that the stakes are high, but also not letting that take over and paralyze us from from getting that work done is always, is always on my mind in terms of what that looks like. And also reminding people too that, again, don't just be going after the big name glamorous positions. Like who are your yeah. local reps? Because that is one thing that, I mean, you know, you have some races where only 2% of the population votes in local elections. Um, for the Teen Vogue cover story I did recently, I found that in the Las Vegas, I believe the Las Vegas, I don't know if it was the actual election or the primary, only 2% of people, I think it was 18 to 34, voted in that. 2%. So yeah. I'm sitting there saying, you guys can affect everything on that level and build up from there. And and making sure I think, you know, if, if we do have bad news or even if we have great news, that people aren't discouraged or also not taking their eye off the ball and also understanding that there's a lot more they could be doing in, in ways that would be so easy. Like local candidates is so much, it's still difficult, but still so much easier to get those people into office or get them into appointed positions and all of this stuff. You know, one of the things that I think is missing from Democrats is the messaging around. So we know what the blue wave is just kind of generally, right? But messaging around how we will practically achieve that. 
right? Like, and as you pointed out, there's still some low turnout in some of these local races, right? And I, I just don't have, you know, a list, like a very pragmatic list to follow. What are voters supposed to do to achieve the blue wave? It's figuring out what you can do to help in the short term. So get elected is obviously just one of a zillion options. We're great because it's all virtual and remote. So people who don't want to canvas or phone bank or don't have the ability to do so, or for a variety of other reasons, just can't get out there to be physically present with a campaign can uh, can do that online and still make a huge difference. I think it's also just, I, I still have a lot of friends who are not talking to their friends about the importance of voting. And that just appalls me. Um, yeah. You know, I had, a, I had a close friend who admitted to me shortly after 2016 that she had not voted in the election. And after a brief couple months where I just needed a moment to, to not be <laughs> outraged, you know, sit her down and actually poke at why or, yeah. or figure out how could I make her start seeing the light, understanding that that's, that was going to be a long process and that a lot of other learning had to be undone to be able to teach her all of this stuff. You know, I think there's things like that that people can do. Is, you know, I, I think there's also I always speak towards young people because that's obviously where a lot of my work lies. And I, I am a quote unquote quote, young person, according to the uh, the people of Twitter. Um, but I, I would say a huge one, too, is, for instance, I think Cosmo did this huge survey or study where, you know, they, they interviewed thousands of millennials. And the biggest thing they heard is that millennials said they didn't know who was running or any of the practical information. So making sure that your friends and family, um, in addition to you helping out doing all the stuff, make sure people know what day your primary is, what day the the cutoff is to register to vote. Uh, same with the reg- to to change your party if you need to. I know a lot of people. There's a lot of party switching going on right now, so yeah. so making that sure that stuff is practically done and making sure too that people know other races are going on. I I was shocked at how many New Yorkers, yeah, had no idea that they you know a lot of the New York City specific races are in 2017. They had no idea that there was a New York City election going on. They had not done any research in their candidates, and most people can't even tell you who their local and state reps are. So I think. Those types of practical things are just as important. And then also taking it upon yourself to be the one to yell at people on election day and leading up to election day. Yo, do you have a ride? Do you know how to get to your polling place? If you're in a state that has those terrible voter suppression ID laws, like what do you need? Um, you know, what's going on with that? Do you know where to access that information if you need to? Those are the types of things that I think people can and should be practically doing in addition to any other volunteering and whatnot. I'd also say too that just amplifying the issues and how we're, what we're seeing, for instance, with you know the child separation from you know family separation we're seeing down at the southern border, talking about that and understanding and talking to people why you know, connecting those dots. Why do we need Democrats in office? Do you absolutely despise what's going on right now and think it's an abomination? Then you need to, in addition to donating, you know, calling your Congress people, et cetera, you need to be prepared to vote in a way that would help those people and help those families. I think I think a lot of that gets lost in how policy and all of that connects to voting, which sounds really counterintuitive and kind of obvious, but you know, you'd be surprised at how many people have many thoughts, but then don't let it be known at the ballot box and then are shocked when when things don't go their way. So I think that's a that's also a big part of it. So the next time, let's say, we, you know, we get to 2020, you know, we take back the House and Senate and, you know, 2020, we have a woman on at the top of the ticket. What should we all be doing differently as, you know, voters and as constituents? Oh, oh, my God. <laughs> so many thoughts. Um, for one thing, let's cool it with the ambition narratives of like, oh, no, ambitious women. That's just kind of a thing. Uh, women are ambitious. They are driven. They have things they want to do. I think also just a lot of people need to sit and think before they speak in terms of how they speak about women candidates, um, in terms of whether it's about appearance or voice tone or 
any number of things that are often coded for you know women or you know that sort of sexism there's a lot of of latent sexism that needs to be discussed i think that's a huge thing um i think also oh i have so many thoughts on this i, I think it's <laughs> <Sorry>. also just <laughs> i'm just sitting here i'm like oh so many things pinging around in my head i think that's a huge one i think i think also making sure we reflect on what went wrong and i would say the past two elections in particular so you can't just look at 2016 you have to look at 2008 because we still had hillary and we also had sarah palin and much can be said about sarah palin but there was also some stuff that was not good uh from everyone so and also how i think certain narratives have been portrayed by men in particular post 2008 so we need to look back and say what did we do wrong in those specific issues you know is it Another huge one, for instance, with any Democratic person who's who's on the ticket or who's you know won the primary, um, but especially women is you know are you going to support because you really want to see someone better who is not Donald Trump in office? Um, I think that's a huge thing where that sort of virtuous like self righteous. I'm not voting unless it's the perfect candidate thing is just not an option right now. And I think we have to we have to also unpack that sort of issue as well. Um, but especially because people seem to have lots of problems, even if they won't say it with women running or with women who don't have a very almost unattainable pedigree and background and appearance, you know, to win. So I think I think those are some of the things that we have to start grappling with. But I think a lot of that also ties into not just the presidential election. There also has to be a lot of grappling with, you know, people's own day-to-day issues with with women, with sexism. And again, I also loop in women with this. There's obviously a lot of women who haven't really done the work in unpacking whatever hatred they have towards themselves or, you know, or um, antagonism towards other women. That's a lot of stuff that just needs to be discussed. And I would also say that's generationally, that has to do, I think, education-wise, there's a lot of rifts, things like that, that sort of have to be discussed if we're going to not only have women who are running for the presidential race, but, you know, really competitive potential to win both the primary and the general. Excellent. Cool. That was my long-winded response to that. No, that was great. Well, um, Lily Herman, thank you so much for joining me. I, I, I'm really proud of the work that you're doing with Get Her Elected. I hope everyone volunteers. Please do. And <laughs> I, for one, I, for one, feel, feel better. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a supporter of the electorate. Visit us at electorate.com and click on the donation link at the top of the page. The electorate is now available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. Please consider subscribing using your favorite podcast platform. Also, please like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash electorate. And until next time, keep up the good fight.